I'm Rick O'Shea, the literary curator of the UCD Festival, and I'd like to welcome you to this, the second virtual edition of UCD Festival at Home for 2021. The UCD Festival is unique and award-winning, one where the global UCD community of students, alumni, future students, and also the wider general public join us for free online events. For the second year, we're not on campus, but instead where you are bringing you all of the inspiring, engaging and informative activities of the regular festival here for our digital and worldwide festival audience to enjoy. I'm particularly thrilled to be highlighting the series of UCD Festival at Home Conversations. There are over 20 chats and discussions taking place and with nearly 100 free virtual and engaging events also running across the weekend, there's something for everyone in the family to enjoy. You can stay up to date on the full UCD Festival at Home program at UCD ie slash festival and don't forget you can join the conversation through the chat function on youtube or on twitter using the hashtag ucd festival do get involved thanks for joining us and enjoy the event Hi. Uh, well, you're all very welcome to uh, this first panel of the UCD Festival, Michael Collins, Then and Now. Uh, I'm Jory Lagerway. I'm the head of film studies at UCD. Um, but let me introduce you to our much more exciting panelists, uh, starting with Neil Jordan, who, if you're tuning in here, of course, hardly needs an introduction. Um, the director of the 1996 film, Michael Collins, he's a renowned multi-award winning author and filmmaker whose career has spanned more than 40 years. Some of his best known films perhaps are The Crying Game, Interview with a Vampire, Michael Collins, The Butcher Boy, The End of the Affair, um, Ondine, and most recently, Greta. He's also written, directed, and produced the two-time Emmy-winning television series, The Borgias, and his films have been honored with numerous awards worldwide, including BAFTAs and an Oscar, and of course, the topic of today's conversation, Michael Collins, which won a Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Um, and joining Neil in conversation, we have Dermot Farader, a professor of modern Irish history at UCD. He's the author of many, many books of Irish history, uh, most recently on the Edge, Ireland's Offshore Islands, A Modern History, The Border, The Legacy of a Century of Anglo-Irish Relations, and Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War. And he'll be a familiar face, of course, to many of you um, from his extensive work on relevant television and radio and as a columnist in the Irish Times. So you're both very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and first of all, congratulations, Neil, to the 25th anniversary of this film. Um, and I immediately after I got the invitation to, to moderate this panel, I ran into a colleague of mine who had just taught your film that week in class. Um, and she spoke about how much the students were excited and engaged by it. Um, so it's a film that has a long, long life um, and, and still is popular and part of film studies conversations at any rate um, at UCD. Um, so... What I would love to talk about today is, as the title suggested, the then and now of Michael Collins. Um, so, Dermot, I wonder if you could maybe start us off by, by laying the scene a bit. Um, give us a bit of context for 1996 Ireland, maybe the peace process. Um, what is going on in the country that would make this film so popular at that moment? 
Well, there was a strong sense that things were changing or things were on the turn, particularly when you compare it to the 1980s, which was such a, a bleak decade. Um, emigration, the troubles in Northern Ireland, widespread unemployment and a sense of uh, despair uh, in relation to, you know, political and economic management. Um, so the 1990s certainly was... Um, much more optimistic, um, obviously um, looming very large in the background is this whole question of, of a nascent peace process and an IRA ceasefire from 1994, which is actually broken uh, in 1996, early in 1996 with the Canary Wharf bomb, which was a reminder of just how fragile uh, everything was in relation to it. And yet there was a lot of optimism. You know, Bill Clinton had come to Northern Ireland as American president at the end of 1995 and, and was talking the language of hope and uh, positive futures. Um, so there was an interesting mix. You know, I mean, things were also turning economically. Um, and there's definitely more optimism around. Um, the question of, of course, how that peace process would pan out, how it would be managed, uh, very much up in the air. There was still an awful lot of nervousness. The Ulster Unionists were dealing with a new leadership with uh, uh, David Trimble. Uh, Jerry Adams, of course, for many was just such a polarizing character. Uh, and the whole question of, of the credentials of those uh, who were shaping up to be peacemakers was continually under the spotlight. Uh, so a lot of questions there. But at the same time, I think a degree of optimism, which made the revisiting uh, of the, the revolutionary period, really, really interesting. It was a really challenging time, I suppose, to be um, depicting the events of, of 1921 and, and 1922. And obviously, there were going to be uh, parallels made. But that in itself is a fraught business, as, as Neil is well aware. Yeah, yeah. Are you talking to yeah, me now? Neil. Yes, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Well, it was a, it was a very it was a very interesting time. It was um, I mean I was only I, I had written the script. I, I, David Putnam, do you remember who he was? David Putnam, Jared Sapphire, and all that. After I made my first movie, Angel, he asked me. He commissioned this script of Michael Collins for me from Warner Brothers. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I knew very little about the figure, you know. And I began to read all the biographies and. Um, a lot of them presented this almost saintly militaristic dude, you know, who was a bit like a fascist kind of figure from the 30s or, you know, a bit, it was a bit like a portrait of, it, it, was, it made me uneasy, let's put it that way, you know what I mean? Because uh, his addiction to militarism, his, uh, his, his conserv basic conservatism, you know, and uh, the fact that the labor movement didn't play any part in any of his perspectives, you know, on what the potential future of this country he was trying to forge would be, you know. And uh, I, initially, I didn't like the guy at all, for some reason. I don't know why. You know, I mean, I, I read the biographies by Rod Taylor. I read Frank I read everything I could get, really. There were quite a, there was, what was the big hagiographic biography by um, his, what, one of, one of his... Easily had two huge volumes, yeah, and it was like reading the biography of a saint, really. You know, you, you know what, Dermot? Do you? Obviously, yeah. Yeah, you know, that was I got these. these was it really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but I got these two hardback volumes out of the National Library out of somewhere, and uh, you know, you're kind of reading, you know, the way the young Winston Churchill would have been presented by 
Boris Johnson or something like that. Do you understand what I mean? It was kind of, it was all a bit strange. But I, as I began to write the script, I really got interested in his, his, uh, his attitude to violence, really. That was, that was what, what, uh, what hooked me in the end, you know. And um, when I, I finished the script, uh, Warner Brothers didn't want anything to do with it, really. They, did, they weren't that interested. And David went off and did other things. And uh, it was only after I'd made a few movies that were successful, uh, particularly Interview the Vampire, which made quite a bit of money for Warner Brothers. They said to me, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, you've got the script there that I had for years, you know. So they began to talk seriously about it. I took it out again and I looked at it. And as Dermot says, the entire perspective on the uh, on the uh, on those whole events and on the idea of the Irish Republic and all of that sort of stuff were changing. You know, I did remember the 1966, uh, the 1966 celebrations outside the GPO where De Valera spoke and it was quite a dismal affair <laughs> as far. I actually wrote a story about it, you know, at the time where all the, all the people in the street were watching the events on television rather than looking at De Valera himself and standing by the GPO, you know? And, uh, but I mean, what really, caught me was the fact that there was quite a quite a kind of quite an almost too obvious parallel between what Collins went through and what was going on with regard to the peace process and the, the attempts of disengagement by the um you know by the IRA and by the various armed groups and stuff like that and so I looked at this movie again and I decided to construct it in a way to use a template of a gangster movie you know and I know everybody talks about The Godfather with regard to Collins, but that's not true. It was more the James Cagney movies and the Warner Brothers black and white movies of the 30s and 40s. And I was making it for Warner Brothers. So I thought, OK, you know, this is the form which basically they invented. And that's the that's the way I structured, you know, all of these quite complicated events, which uh, when the movie came out, gave rise to a lot of criticism and a lot of um you know, a lot of upset, you know, because uh, I suppose the fact that I was portraying somebody who was, you know, not too dissimilar to the figure that Al Pacino played in Scarface, who was better at violence than all the people around him, you know. And uh, I used that uh, rhythm, you know, which Collins himself used of of kind of you know, almost uh, deliberate creations of, of episodes of outrage that would be followed by a reaction that he then would react against. And so this rhythm that, you know, it may, be, it may be do a disservice to the whole period to look at it, you know, with that kind of lens, but actually I thought it was justifiable given that Con Collins himself did, you know, set up this armed group and in the end had to, had to disestablish it in some way and failed and was killed by it, you know? So that was the, that was the basic template I followed. And, uh, there was a whole section I'd written on the treaty debates. So another treaty debates, the uh, treaty negotiations in London, <coughs> which I would have loved to photograph, but Warner Brothers said, look, we're going to give you $32 million or 33 or whatever it was, you know? And we just had, I just couldn't afford to do that. I couldn't afford to move the entire production to London and to cast Birkenhead and Churchill and Lloyd George and go through all of those things, which would have been fascinating actually, because it would have, um, it would have articulated in a dramatic way, the actual dilemma, you know, as to why De Valera himself did not go, you know, and why he, uh, why he sent the most rambunctious of his kind of, uh, 
of his uh, followers to to negotiate this this uh, this truce or this uh, this this treaty, you know, with you know with 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 the, with the grand kind of figures of the British establishment who would have loathed him in the first place. But anyway, we couldn't do that, and so the film the film ended up being actually about the uses of violence by this one individual, you know, and about his attempts to uh, resolve that issue and you know, the armed movement that he basically in many ways had, had, had structured or sculpted himself, you know, turning on, turning on him and taking him to pieces really. So that was my, it's, that was my. That to, me, that, that to me was one of the most intriguing things, Neil. And it, it, this question of what you include and what you leave out, what you have space for. Uh, I mean, the drama mm. inherent in the treaty negotiations would make a terrific film in itself. And indeed, mm-hmm. I mean, in 1991, well before uh, your own good, film. Brendan Gleeson, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah Brendan Gleeson did a terrific job uh, in Jonathan Lewis's film on the treaty. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking more recently there about the Lincoln uh, film that had such a brilliant turn. Uh, by Daniel Day Lewis, where they, you know they're looking at the business of of of, of trying to to get legislation through and, and and all the weeding and dealing that goes on. So there is drama uh, in that, but that was always mm. going to be the dilemma, I suppose, given the amount that was going on in 1921 and 1922, even in those mm. two years, the various layers and the layers within the layers, um, what you include and what you leave out. And I remember reading an interview with Alan Rickman, who was I think mm. terrifically cast as as Amy Duff, but he made the point that he would that you would have needed 12 hours <laughs> to tell the full story. Uh, and he had issues with the way you know, De Valera was uh, uh, depicted. So you were always going to have those debates about what you include, well, what you I, leave out. I, I never understood that, those comments by Alan, actually, you know, because uh, everything, he was so mesmeric that every piece of film we shot in him was in the movie. You know what I mean? But I think what happens with actors is they get this extreme, if you, do, if you ever do a historical movie, okay, and... Uh, you cast figures that are well-known. The actors that you cast immediately get the biographies of those characters, and they identify so strongly with these characters. They almost take their point of view, you know, and they share their sense of betrayal and all that sort of stuff. You know? But, I mean, the, the uh, in a strange way, not including the treaty was, in the end, kind of interesting because it isolated the drama in terms of personal betrayal, you know? And those scenes where Rickman confronted Collins after he had come back from the treaty uh, were so dynamic in terms of de Valera's personal sense of betrayal and injury, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm sure de Valera was a very, uh, you know, there was a, probably a strong element of paranoia to his personality, you know, and uh, it was, to me, in a strange way, in the end, I would have loved to go to London and shoot, and so, particularly to see Collins confronting the sophistication, you know, of a wider world and stuff like that. But in the end, it it it, it did concentrate the drama in some way, you know. So it's, um, I mean, I would love to make another movie about De Valera, pure and simple, you know. But I don't think anyone would ever give me the money to do that, you know. <laughs> well, that was one of the interesting things about, I suppose, there's also then the, the question of, of, is it a case of building up Collins at the expense of De Valera, uh, is there the, the depiction of of a cartoon villain in De Valera, uh, and and the way in which that construction can work? Because De Valera comes very badly out of this film, um, and you know, given well, the style you know, that they're talking about, would it even come worse out of the film if I'd let if, if if I'd let it go on a little bit longer? You know, because the, the entire thing constructing a monument for Collins, you know, which uh, 
which uh, a lot of Colin's associates came to De Valera when he was Taoiseach and said, look, we deserve to, you know, we deserve to at least acknowledge this man's burial place. And De Valera had these extraordinary strictures. He actually agreed, but measured almost to the centimetre what the dimensions of the grave could be, you know, and how there would be no kind of statuesque element to it, stuff like that. And you yeah. realise that the man's kind of, the man's kind of bitterness pers- persisted way far, far longer than than Collins's, far, far after Collins's death, you know. But I mean, I kind of thought it's kind of fascinating because uh, I mean, we're, how old are you? You're, you're in your sixties, yeah. I'm clinging on to my forties, nearly a bastard. I let, I let that one pass. <laughs> I was born in 1972. Oh well, I was born in 1950. Okay, and I do remember my mother. I'm so sorry. Forgive me for That's that. That's okay. I forgive you. Okay. No, but I, my mother was an ardent De Valera supporter. You know, she was literally, I don't know why, maybe I think there was some Republican con- connections in her family, you know, because her father, her mother, her mother worked with Collins in the GPO in London, you know, and there's some strange, mysterious thing about this grandfather who I never met. You know, he came over during when they introduced conscription in England as a conscientious objector, and there was some connection there somehow. But my father, on the other hand, uh, seemed very circumspect about the figure, you know. And in most, in a lot of Irish families, there were those things, weren't there? There was a de Valera oh, thing. Absolutely. It was a Fine Gael yeah. thing. It wasn't quite called Collins. Yeah. It was a Fine Gael well, thing, really, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the very interesting thing uh, for me um, about de Valera. Mm. And it's actually, my major gripe with the film was not the film, it was what comes at the very end of it where you use that quotation um, that De Valera allegedly uttered in 1966 that history will record the greatness of Collins and it will be recorded at my expense. And you're right, De Valera was mean about the grave and about the memorialization of Collins. But I don't believe for a minute he ever said that. And what I would often say to students, because it's a a very useful teaching tool of your film, I would say to students, What's the source for that quotation? And then you go digging and you found find out, okay, Tim Pakugan, Collins' biographer, was told it by a nephew of Collins. A nephew oh. of Collins allegedly heard it from Joe McGrath. Joe McGrath right. allegedly had had this conversation with De Valera, which wasn't recorded. And you just start digging into the whole question of, of where the source right. for that is. And it, mm. that's the last thought mm. you walk away from the film with because it's that quotation. Mm. And it's very striking. Well, but it's not in keeping with De Valera's style at all, you know? I understand that, but I actually, at one stage, I did think of structuring the entire movie, movie you know, with uh, with the conversation, the appeal to build this monument in Glasnevin to Collins and De Valera's deliberation of it and his final answer. I mean, I didn't know at the time that that, that quote was inaccurate, you know. Do you understand what I mean? Because Tim Pasnavel yeah. had been... And it, se- yeah. it seemed to be kind of far more interesting and questioning than a lot of the other treatments of Collins, you know, but uh, I I think Michael Collins is a strange movie because the strange thing is parts of it are very accurate, you know, I mean, the entire section from when, when De Valera, when Collins returned from it, from Britain and all of the conversations about the treaty and those entire treaty debates, yeah, which we shot in the library in Trinity, you know, we we should have shot them in the, well, I I wouldn't have done it actually in the little, the little hall in UCD where they actually happened. It wouldn't have been big enough to to yeah. contain the emotions, but we did. I did use the actual words, insofar as I could get them from the record, you know. And so you had, you know, you you had uh, 
Collins, you had De Valera, you had uh, you had uh, you, you had all the different figures. They were actually saying this rather pedantic kind of uh, you know earth-shattering statements. They all felt they should make, and every everything in that sequence is actually from the treaty yeah. debates. I mean, I've, of course, I didn't shoot a whole lot of them because they went on for about twenty-nine days. But everything that is said in there no, was you, actually. You, you, yeah, no, you really captured the intensity of that and and the sense of of moral righteousness um, and the sense of betrayal, um, and you know they felt these things very differently. It's going to be very interesting later this year because we'll be looking at the hundredth anniversary of the treaty uh, negotiations uh, and and the treaty debates. And as an actual study um, in the you know that that sense of. Um, broken promises and what's possible in politics and how personalised it can become when the unity mm. is shattered, when the Republican movement is ruptured. I think that was captured very well and it does become deeply personal. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, people were very interested too in the kind of love triangle between uh, Collins and Boland and, and, and Kitty Kiernan. And, and of course, you can take artistic uh, licence in relation to how that's depicted. But in Ireland was, was, still is, a small, compact country and this wasn't mm. just about Sinn Féin politicians being divided. The IRA was divided. Common Man was divided. Society at large was divided. Individual families were divided mm. over the treaty. And, and that's and one of the things I found in, intriguing about the film when it came out. There was a real sense, Neil, that this was um, a national occasion. And there was a communal yeah. engagement uh, with the yeah. film. And yeah. even that decision yeah. to give it a cert... Uh, lower than 15, a PG search on the grounds mm. that this was uh, an issue of, of, of national importance that as many people as possible could engage with. So I think that comes out very strongly uh, that this wasn't just about very interesting politicians or it wasn't just about uh, mm. terrorists becoming peacemakers. It was th There was a sense that this is our story and it's being told by one of our own, you know? Well, actually, I did, when I shot it, it was interesting because... Uh, when we re we did rebuild the GPO, you know, and we changed the we changed the geography of O'Connell Street, you know, because there's there's a street leading which would be Abbey Street, which leads right towards the gates, right towards the pillars of the GPO, which obviously wasn't the case, but we needed that because of the space available in Grange Gorman where we built the set. But when we were shooting that scene, it was kind of eerie, and I had no idea that the. Uh, you know, with 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 the uh, with the cannons hitting the GPO and the, the 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 shattering of the things and the guys inside and all that sort of stuff, I had no idea the emotional impact it would have. It was very strange actually shooting it. It was like watching something. I was going, "Oh my God, this is kind of scary," you know. Yeah. And this is what they taught us at school when we were too young to even understand it. We regarded it as old hat, really, in a strange way. But to see it alive and to see it in the kind of dimensions that they were probably about 12% less big than they would have been, you know. But to see it almost almost in, in the dimension of the reality at the time was kind of terrifying. And particularly when all the lads walked out, you know. And I made a big mistake. I didn't realize that a woman had walked out with, with, with the surrender flag, you know. I should have known that. But did anybody know that at the time? Nobody told me. They did, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there was a lot of focus on uh, this was Elizabeth Farrell, um, mm. who, you know, was famously uh, airbrushed out of uh, the photograph, the surrender photograph of herself and Pierce, mm -hmm. but you can see her feet. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of attention, particularly in 2016 for the uh, centenary, but there wasn't as much discussion, I suppose, about it in 
um, in, in the 1990s. There'd be much more of an awareness now of, of depicting a much fuller cast uh, of yes, characters. Of I know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, yeah. But that, that was the other... Um, that was the other interesting thing about uh, as well about okay emerging from the GPO uh, and Collins this is Collins the fighter but then mm. when you look at our most memorable image from the publicity around the film is the you know the passionate um, orator trying to sell mm. a, a political deal he's in civilian garb and my mm. understanding Neil and you, you'll remind me if this is correct was that one of the original publicity posters actually had Collins with a rifle, um, yeah. but that this changed. No, there's about 12. What they do is, I mean, you're, you, you know, there are people better at publicity than the people who make the movies, you know what I mean? And what they do is they give you about 20 different versions of posters, yeah. And yeah. then the publicity department it being in America, you know what I mean? They have no compunction about showing a guy with a, rifle in his hand and a green flag flying behind him, you know, that kind of thing. And you have to yeah. say, look, lads, that might, make, that might make the best kind of image to promote this movie back in this country, you know, that kind of thing. But there was, I mean, there was about 20 different posters shown to me, you know, yeah. but uh, it, it is odd. The one they, they chose was the one where he's speaking in, it was meant to be uh, in a rural, in a rural little townland, you know, speaking to a bunch of people who were about to be overrun by horses and kind of cows driven through by anti-treaty forces, you know, that kind of thing. But it's, it's, that's what they, that's what they chose. But it was strange making the movie because it was like before, even before I made the film, people were giving out about what the film would be about, you know? So, and people were saying, is it true? I believe it's about this. I believe it's about that. I believe it's about the other. And, uh, it was almost like you realize, oh my God, I've been commissioned to, to design a national monument, you know? And there are rules in monumental sculpture. There are, there are rules, you know, if the horse has one, has, has its front leg raised, or if the, if the sword is in its scabbard, it means this or the other, something means surrender, something means trying, it's all that kind of thing. And it was yeah. kind of, it was kind of, it was slightly uncomfortable to be making it with that, uh, you know, with that kind of pressure. But anyway, it was, it was great. It was great that so many people were interested in it. And the, I think well, they pretended... Can... Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I said, that was the interesting thing as well. Just that sense of anticipation and that sense of in, in, in such widespread engagement with it. And of course, for the historian watching it, they're, of course, looking out for, for, for all sorts. Uh, it's not that they're going to be po-faced about it, but they are going to be very interested in, in the depiction of historical characters and historical events. Um, yeah. And everyone feels, th this isn't just about historians, everyone feels that they have a, a particular uh, version or that there's been, as you mentioned earlier on, there have been loyalties and interpretations mm. and perhaps prejudices inherited or, or, or passed down. Uh, and mm. I think that's why... Um, you know, the, there's an awareness on the part of historians that films can generate interest in historical events and characters way beyond what historical scholarship can do, you know. And you could argue that the film created more interest uh, in in Collins than 60 or 70 mm. years of scholarship books had, you know. Yeah, but it, it, that was also accidental. It was because the film... The film placed Collins in uh, kind of an analogous position to which the armed movement in the in in you know you know nineteen ninety six was you know I mean it was and that was quite deliberate you know yeah. it, it was and it was odd to be to be placing a figure 
who basically is the uh, is is kind of the the, the, the hero of Fine, of the Fine Gael party. You know, the most probably the most conservative party that has emerged out of Ireland, replacing a figure like him. You know, in this position of controversy, in this position, in it, it, I, I didn't at all want to make him a quasi Jerry Adams or Martin McGuinness, but I did want him to make somebody who was absolutely pitiless and in many ways kind of unconscionable in his use of violence, you know, and who then, when he thought he could happily, you know, disengage, uh, disengage this whole process and found he couldn't, you know, that, that, I mean, that, that, that was deliberate, that, 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 that was the, that was the basic yeah. metaphor, the analogous, yeah. the, the analog, what you could, the analogy yeah. of the whole film, you know. Yeah. And, and I used, I mean, I mean that, that rootlessness is, is very much part of the story. Um, and and you're right in that. It's Collins' story. It's why, why when I first read the biographies, I, I didn't like him very much. You know what I mean? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, but then, and what was really interesting, actually, in retrospect, is you know the whole argument, which I would have agreed with or I would have supported that. You know, the change that this kind of war of independence brought about probably would have happened if the constitutional process had taken, you know, if the Irish parliamentary party had been allowed to proceed and home rule, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But when Brexit came around, you know, and I saw the, the absolute entrenched kind of refusal to, you know, to accommodate any other point of view of the Tory party, I re I kind of realized that they never would have introduced home rule, you know, unless they were forced yeah. to. That's what, that's what I felt myself, you know what I mean? But I mean, at the time... Well, I, think the of, I think the study of history would vindicate uh, that mm -hmm. belief, you know. I mean, we can talk about the ruthlessness quite rightly on the Irish side, but the way Colin saw it, I'm paying them mm -hmm. in their own currency. This is the only language they're going to understand, and this is the only way we have a hope um, of, of, of getting anywhere near uh, our aims. Well, I don't, I don't think... They wouldn't have gotten close to it, you know what I mean? They, they, they wouldn't have... Um, I mean, they definitely weren't going to. They definitely weren't going to broach the issue as long as the First World War was happening. You know what I mean? And the, the, it's yeah. like and it's interesting that is conscription or the threat of conscription that basically gave rise to the, you know, to the to the huge success of the, of the Sinn Fein movement in the uh, what was it 1918 election? Was it 1918? 1918. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which yeah. Is the, the only All Ireland election that one can. I mean, I'm not a. I wouldn't call myself a Republican by any by any manner of means, but it's. You know, there there are certain things that uh, maybe there. I don't know. Is there a character? Is there a national character? <laughs> I wouldn't like to say there's such a thing as the British national character, the Irish national character, but there does seem to be a kind of a, a kind of a drag in British constitutional politics. You know what I mean? That never would have allowed this to happen, really, because they had an empire. They had the full they had the full extent of the empire at the time, didn't they? They had India. They had the, the Caribbean. Yeah. They had, you know, yeah. They even have but it's one of the things that you notice, you know, when you're researching this period, I remember being over in London in the middle of Brexit in the parliamentary archives, and I was looking at the papers of David Lloyd George, of course, who was the Prime Minister, who ended up negotiating with Collins, and you realise Ireland is just a small piece of their imperial jigsaw. You know, they were concerned about Greece and Palestine, um, and, and everything that was going on um, with regard to the deployment of their troops in so many different parts of, uh, of the country. And uh, the, the irritation for them is that the Irish problem uh, can't be contained because they keep saying this is a policeman's job, you know, to uh, <laughs> to sedate Ireland, uh, to keep it off the table at Downing Street. And because of what Collins and others are doing, uh, it, they can't 
maintain that narrative um, and then they have to begin to uh, think differently about it and, and coming to some kind of a terms. But, you know, it had huge consequences for their whole idea uh, of empire, which is why we end up with the treaty debates, because there still is the imperial uh, connection. And these British mm. politicians are saturated uh, in imperial mm. thinking. And that was their bottom line, um, mm. you know, that the, yeah, we, we could accommodate an agreement, but there would have to be the maintenance of, of that connection with the empire. And what often strikes mm. me, Neil, is just how young um, th- that generation of Irish Republicans were when they were at this business. You know, I mean, Collins was, was a very young man uh, and he was very yeah. immature in lots of ways for all of his sophistication. I mean, how, how, innocent, how innocent in a strange way, you know what I mean? You know, it's the kind yeah. of, I connected to the innocence of my parents, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they yeah. were, you know, sexually naive. They were kind of deeply religious, you know, extraordinary, you know, deeply Catholic and Protestant, I'm sure, you know, and the idea of being such a thing as a secular kind of a secular republic would 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 have, they wouldn't have under, even understood the question, you know, that kind of thing. And it's yeah. uh, anyway, but the 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 the, the, the I, I mean, I had I had to, you know, I I I made certain kind of I squeezed events, obviously, you know, and the the thing I was criticised most for, apart from the fact of the uh, of the uh, Bloody Sunday uh, events was that car bomb in Dublin Castle, you know? And everybody said, everybody said, oh, how dare you relate, use a car bomb in a film, you know what I mean? That's a direct relationship to the, you know, kind of a wink or a nod to the North of Ireland. But from my perspective, it wasn't. It was straight out of White Heat. It was straight out of a a James Cagney, you know, a James Cagney... um, kind of Warner Brothers gangster movie of the 30s or 40s, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, I was upset that that was taken as a reference to to uh, to the north of Ireland and to the bombing campaign in the north of Ireland. You know, I didn't mean that. I just, it was a piece of shorthand that seemed to me to be of a piece with the with the genre as a whole, you know? And yeah. I don't, I don't know if... Happen? Pardon? Sorry? Go ahead. Isn't that the thing that, I mean, once you put that out there, you know, what interpretations people choose to put on it, uh, you, you can't have any control uh, over that. I mean, obviously people can say to you, hang on a sec, Ned Broy lived until 1972. What are you doing having him, <laughs> having well, him uh, hanging reason, from the rafter? I mean, the problem with that was Ned Broy was, uh, you know, obviously he was the spy in the castle, you know, and uh, the name was so appealing as a pun that uh, the overseer that, you know, the kind of the head of the Cairo gang comes in, he calls him boy. And Stephen Ray kept having to correct him, say, no, sir, it's boy. And that was so appealing to me when I, I had to, I had to elide Ned Broy's uh, character with two characters, McKee and Clancy, who were, who were captured after the, after the bloody sun, yeah. Sunday killings, you know? So I, I made them all into one person, but the name yeah. was still there. <laughs> I couldn't. Ned Broy's, his daughter came to me and she said, I'm very surprised that you killed my father because I remember a very <laughs> kindly like looking after my upbringings in the 60s and 70s, you know. She was very sweet yeah. about it. But she, she she's, was, a uh, she's a marvellous woman, Neil. And I mean, I, I was yeah. given a lecture years ago and I made comments about Ned Broy's statement that he gave to the Bureau of Military History when they were collecting these statements from, from uh, veterans of the year in the 40s and the 50s. And he's a very mm-hmm. long statement. 
um, that is uh, really a love, a long love letter to Michael Collins. Uh, and I was talking in those terms, not realizing that his daughter was in the audience. Uh, okay. She came up to me afterwards. <laughs> Uh, and and just um, made herself known, uh, but um, she's she's a fascinating character herself, you know. But that's Absolutely. the interesting thing about the time of the film, twenty five years ago. You know, there are an awful lot of people uh, watching that film who were the sons and daughters of of that generation, and they feel these things very deeply and they feel them very strongly. And as you know, because of the way mm. he died, and it's part of the film's emotional appeal, the the lost leader. Um, and they do become this canvas onto which people will paint really anything they want. Um, and, and over the passage of time, that can be even more and more embellished, which again is why the film came at a very interesting time, because mm. it, it raised difficult questions that had a contemporary resonance. Yeah, it did raise Dermot, difficult questions. I think, I'm so sorry to interrupt this really fascinating conversation, but we're, we're coming up on time. And so um, I want to take the opportunity. Dearmid just mentioned this really fascinating dynamic where you might have had, you know, sons and daughters in the audience in, in 96. So if we could sort of fulfill our brief of the then and now, jumping forward to the 25th anniversary that happens to fall in this decade of centenaries, um, how do you think the relationship of the film to the audience, um, or indeed to how we remember that period of history in Ireland, um, has has changed or has it changed? Or maybe you could talk about the film in its guise now in, in 2021 for our last few minutes. Well, I mean, I would still see an awful lot of students coming in to study history in UCD whose first introduction to Michael Collins was through Neil's film. Um, mm. And that's very interesting, and it's a reflection of all sorts of different things. Uh, but it raises an interesting challenge. Um, like, what do you say to them um, ab about that? Is it enough for them to get their history from film? Or as Neil would have suggested at an earlier stage, should it push them in the direction of, of digging deeper and reading more and saying, okay, the film is one thing and it's one depiction and it's one introduction, uh, but you've got to do a hell of a lot more, uh, to, you know, to make up your own mind uh, about this character. And, you know, that's still going to be relevant um, perhaps even more so 25 years on because we're approaching the centenary um, mm. of, of the events that are depicted. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. But I mean, when, when before, before I made the movie, and I'm not making any claims for myself or for the film, you know, I mean, before I made the movie, the great figures in uh, the kind of story of, you know, of Irish independence were De Valera and Cultgrave, weren't they? You know? I mean, Collins was kind of an afterthought, really. He was already, he was already mentioned, and he obviously wasn't a political figure. He didn't, you know, he didn't become an, the establishment of Fine Gael Party or any of those kind of things. It's like, and it's rather odd now that he seems to be the major conversation piece about that whole period, you know. Is it my fault? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, hope, I, hope it's, uh, I hope it's an interesting... Um, kind of introduction to what probably still is an unfinished business. I mean, there's going to be all sorts of strange kind of centenaries this year, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. talking about the centenary of, of the establishment of, 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 the north of, of the north of Ireland, of Ulster, you know, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. It's going, to be, it's going to be very odd. And there's going to be a lot of uh, conflicting kind of dialectic going on, isn't it? There's going to be a lot of interesting argument happening, you know. 
But uh, and I'm delighted you refer to unfinished business there because it is all unfinished business and it has to remain unfinished business because there is no definitive life of Collins or definitive interpretation of Collins. And that's one of the key messages we'd be imparting uh, as historians is, is that, you know, the question of interpretation uh, and sifting through the, the, the evidence, it has to go on. Yeah, perhaps it will. Yes, I know. I know. And it's I, I actually think... It was a beautiful, I mean, through my entire experience as a writer and a filmmaker, it was a wonderful relationship between me and Britain, you know? I mean, the BBC, British cinema, British publishers, Faber and Faber, all of that sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're a home for Irish writers. For other, they were a home for Irish writers and other voices and other kind of critiques, both about the Irish experience and the British experience. I do feel in my bones something of that has changed radically, you know? I think Brexit has changed an enormous amount of things, and I don't think we fully understand them yet. You know, I think the BBC is about to probably to be hobbled in a way that, uh, you know, that will make it just reflect one kind of imperial point of view or one imperial narrative, you know. And uh, I think there's a lot of questions will be asked and will continue to be asked about the whole, that's the whole, that whole set of relationships, you know. I'm not being very articulate, am I? I do feel something, something, something cataclysmic has happened and we don't quite know what it is yet, you know. Do you understand what I mean, Dermot? Um, no, I think you're spot on. I mean, there's no doubt Brexit uh, changed things fundamentally. And you're right, it's too early for us to fully absorb what exactly those changes are. But the signs are very worrying. Yes, there, there's going to there's be, be a set of conflicting narratives, you know, and people demanding to put their stamp on stuff that is as yet unresolved, I would say, you know, that's the way I would put it. So perhaps the ongoing process of of history and the really complex relationship between historical films and the process of history is a really good place to end this conversation. Um, So I just want to thank both of our speakers, Neil Jordan and Dermot Farader, um, for a fascinating conversation, for making my job as a moderator so easy. Um, And then to thank the audience for tuning in and to say also, this is just the beginning of the UCD Festival. So please check out the festival website website uh, at ucd.ie slash festival um, to get the full program of events. So thanks very much. Thank Bye-bye. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, everyone. See you. Bye.